Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Today we salute Erin Perry, the managing editor of Outlier Media. Outlier Media is a Detroit-based service journalism organization that identifies reports and delivers valuable information to empower residents to hold landlords, municipal government, and elected officials accountable for longstanding problems. They also have three newsletters for city residents covering news, real estate, and local government, and a section of their website, outliermedia.org, is devoted to Detroit news. Erin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate this. So the first question, this is the same one that we ask everyone that comes on. What's your journalism (laughs) origin story? Oh, I love telling this story. I started a different, different entry point every time, but I do love to tell it. I'll always start with Detroit. It's where my roots are. It's where I grew up. It's where I was educated. And if you know anything about Detroiters, you know that we pride ourselves on where we went to high school. And for me, that was Cass Tech, which is a Detroit public high school. We always say we have been and always will be a second to none. And so I like to say that Cass Tech introduced me to two loves. One, the man who I would eventually marry, which is my my husband. We've been married for 12 years now. We met in high school. And the other love was journalism. I had English and drama teachers. And they they kind of operated like a very sophisticated game of telephone. And so when one teacher spotted talent in a student, that teacher told another teacher who told another teacher. And so when I was a freshman there, the English teacher that I had saw something in my writing and this probably uncanny kind of interest in grammar and language and speech. And, you know, she told another teacher who was in charge of restarting the high school newspaper. And so I started on the high school newspaper in 10th grade. Back then, Cass was one of a dozen or so high schools, a few dozen, I should say, high schools who would put together this collective newspaper that was distributed to students around the city. And that program was sponsored by the Detroit Free Press and the Ford Motor Company Fund. Being in that program, it it wasn't just about the news writing for me, and my teachers knew that, and so they started recommending me for other things, and so I ended up being a teen reporter at the local radio station, and I spent some time as a photographer at the mall, so I had this mix of experience with words and sound and images, and those experiences just really, they, they just kind of underscored my interest in communication. And so with that experience and that drive, you know, it all helped me win this coveted journalism scholarship for $24,000. And it was a journalism scholarship from Ford and the Free Press for being a part of that program. And at that time, this was back in 2001, I had read about these plans for Scripps Howard to build a journalism and communication school at Hampton University. And it's a small HBCU in Hampton, Virginia, and I was sold. And so I walked into that scholarship interview with a copy of a magazine article about that school opening. And I told that committee that I needed to graduate from that school. And so my time at Hampton was just incredible. 
I worked on the school newspaper. I was a reporter, a copy editor, eventually the copy desk chief. And by the time I graduated, I was headed into my fifth internship. And so it was just really good training from, you know, the educators and professors who were there, who were very challenging and supportive at every turn, but who just really believed that I could handle whatever they threw at me and fully expected me not to disappoint them. So I I hope I didn't. But after I left Hampton, I had a postgrad internship at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution before I took my first full-time job at the Akron Beacon Journal. And I stayed there for about a year before I moved back home for love, but also for a paycheck at the Detroit Free Press. And I ended up running that same high school journalism program that I was in as a teenager. And so I had an opportunity to hand out many of those $24,000 journalism scholarships, which were still being distributed when I was running the program. And also had a chance to run the program's summer apprentice program. So that was pretty cool. I did that as a student as well, high school student. And I stuck around the free press for about six years before my husband and I relocated to Brazil, which is where I launched my freelance career as an editor and a writer. And later we moved to Mexico for a few years. And, you know, both of those international moves were for my husband's career. But when we settled back in Michigan in 2018, that's when I was able to jump right into my PhD program, which I hope to finish by the end of this year. I study journalism now and also and also do it. So I, I like to call myself a practitioner scholar in that let, regard. Let me go back to one thing, and that's, was there anything from your family that would have influenced how you tell stories? Yeah. <laughs> my, you know, my friends say they can, whenever I send them a text message, they say, oh my God, I totally read that in your voice. And they always talk about how I just kind of tell a complete story. And I think my goal is always to be a clear communicator, particularly in my writing, but in the storytelling as well, whether it's a text message or something more complicated, like a recruitment plan or an award submission or an annual report or something. I just want to give you as much detail as possible to head off any questions. And I know I ask questions for a living, but you know who, who has time to <laughs> keep asking questions? And so I want to give you everything that I've got to paint a, the clearest picture. And so I, I think outside of my training, if I had to think about my upbringing, I, I do think about my mother. She's extremely detailed and methodical. And my father, God rest his soul, I mean, he he had a habit of speaking in very low volumes in, in public and very low tones. But when we would say we couldn't hear him, I could see this frustration on his face. And I don't want to ever have to look at people like that if something that they're delivering to me is unclear. And I don't want to have them looking at me like that because the confusion that I've created for them is frustrating. Like, I don't want to be in that situation. And so I try to speak up. I try to speak clearly. And I really just try to give you everything that I've got. And clarity is certainly important at Outlier Media. Can you give us a more expansive description of what Outlier does and why it's so badly needed in Detroit? Oh, man. Yeah. You know, local journalism in Detroit is still mostly in these kind of for-profit silos. And so Outlier's goal is really to promote collaboration, even in watchdog reporting, right? You know, sometimes we, we play that kind of 
reporting very close to the chest because you don't want anyone else to steal the story. But, you know, for the sake of the people we serve, Outlier believes that collaboration is supremely important and it's improving. I mean, we have monthly collaborative editorial meetings with several different news organizations in Detroit. And we, I think we have built a pretty good understanding that if we don't work together, none of us will survive. The, the founder and editor-in-chief of Outlier, Sarah Alvarez, likes to say, competition is dead because we all lost. <laughs> and so our goal is to make sure that, you know, we are working together for the people who we serve. The goal is to get good information in the hands of Detroiters who we know desperately need it. And we do all of this knowing that our reach is different, but what works well for us, because our liars is smaller than, for example, the Detroit Free Press, who we partner with and, and actually share a reporter with. So we know that there's a like a shorter arm's length for our community uh, to to reach in to different news organizations. But we, we just want we want that arm's length to be shorter for us because it's not a tall order for them to to reach us. And response is, is pretty much guaranteed, which not many news organizations can say. And so we think that what people want is to know that they can reach reporters when they need to, to know that when they give reporters information to do their jobs, that the reporters will then be careful and accurate and sensitive with that information. And when that info isn't really about the person, they just want relevant, timely, you know, useful information about other people and other issues that, that affect them. Because, you know, let's be real, like they probably would rather not pay for news but still have it be a quality product. And so the current landscape doesn't really cater to all of those things that I just mentioned because there is so much to cover and so few people to cover it and so many advertisers to please in the meantime. But Detroit is such a big city with big problems and big money. And those things just tend to adversely affect the little guys who have little money and little access and whose problems are perceived as little because of those things. So we focus on those people. That's our elite and exclusive audience. We we want we we don't want to deny that our coverage is specialized. Like we have a news product that focuses specifically on local government and another on real estate and housing and development and another one that focuses on culture and community. And that may sound like a really wide focus, but it's so relentlessly local. So not so much, right? It's it's not that broad. I remember two years ago, I think I talked to three different people for this podcast who said, you have to talk to Outlier, you have to talk to Outlier. <laughs> and one of the things that they talked about was the idea of the text service that you provide. Can you explain that? Yeah, so our SMS, the, the text message service is really an opportunity for Detroiters to, again, just reach in and to let us know what they need help with for free. Uh, you know, they can talk to a reporter one-on-one. Right now, the system offers assistance with issues related to housing and utilities. And we, right now, they can, they can look up, Detroiters can look up addresses to see if a home, a particular home has been foreclosed on by the Wayne County Treasurer this year, or they can get help with something else like home repair or eviction or affordable housing. We don't typically use that text message service to gain sources for our benefit you know like we don't we don't mind the text system that way 
But when people tell us that they need help with something, then that's when we that's when we get to work with that. So I found myself clicking on a lot of the links for one of your newsletters in particular, The Dig. Some of the mm -hmm. stories there included, and I'll read three headlines, fake landlords destroy lives but rarely face consequences, victim of Detroit's landlord scam gets her house back, put in hotels after eviction, these Detroiters now have nowhere to go. With that in mind, how are your newsletters put together and could you give us some more detail about that one? Oh yeah, so it is all collaborative. <laughs> Everything is done in collaboration. Erin Mondry, who writes The Dig, is great at story binding and getting expert sources on the record from all of his years of experience that he has working on those stories about housing and development. His work goes through two rounds of edits, one with the editor-in-chief, Sarah Alvarez, and, and then with me. And then those other two newsletters that you mentioned are the Detroit Documenters newsletter and the Detour Detroit newsletter. And the, you know, the tagline for Detroit Documenters is powered by outlier media, but we could argue that the Detroit Documenters program powers outlier media. So we could flip that. The Detroit Documenters newsletter, it's this, this kind of careful curation of work that is produced by this group of very highly engaged citizens who outlier employees train to take notes at local government and community meetings. And then those notes are put through an editing and fact-checking process with reporters and editors from Outlier and from those other news outlets that I mentioned who were a part of the, the uh, monthly collaborative editorial meeting so, and our media partners. And so we work with those editors to get those notes into shape. And from there, we make them publicly available to journalists who just you know may want a rundown of what took place at a local government meeting that they couldn't attend because, again, short on people power. And then the Documenters newsletter is, it's, it's really like a, it, I call it a gift for our readers and our donors and all the journalists around the city. You know, we have every idea how it benefits outliers' financial health, health but it really is beneficial to all the news organizations that are in the city. And so we have two coordinators who put that together, Noah Kincaid and, and Linnell Herndon, and also a Report for America Corps member in Malak Sumi, who just started this summer at, La at Outlier. And so they put together that documenter's newsletter, and that also goes through two rounds of edits before it's published. And then the third one is Detour. Detour is our newest newsletter. It was in existence before we merged with, with Detour as an organization. And that's a weekly newsletter. It reaches about 10,000 people. And it basically features this like curated news and guides and original reporting to help Detroiters stay informed and connected to the city. But what's interesting about Detour is that every member of our editorial team writes for Detour. And then Kate Abby Lamberts is like the lead, the lead editor on that one. So yeah, I think, I think I covered it all. Those are our three newsletters. We should mention too, that with regards to the documenters program, that City Bureau, another group that we've had on this podcast, that they recently got funding. And I'm of the impression that there's going to be much more documenting taking mm -hmm. place at town meetings all around the country, and certainly a, a very important program. Absolutely. I, I, I see a lot of reader-initiated questions within the newsletters, so I'm curious, what kind of questions do you get? 
we we keep this running log of <laughs> of questions because we want to answer all of them. But you know, again, it's, it's you can't right. So you you keep this running list of questions so that you can get to them when when you when you can. But there's pretty much an open invitation for people to submit them. So recently, we answered one about whether candidates have to provide their full legal name on a ballot. We've answered uh, questions about the Detroit Police Department's protocol for when an officer loses their partner on a job, because unfortunately, we had an officer killed in the line of duty this summer. And so we wanted to know what happens, you know, to, to his partner in that regard. You know, how will the city council's reparations task force committee members be chosen? What's the difference between an auditor general, inspector general, and the city ombudsman? You know, what kind of power does the city council resolution have? So, you know, we're we're honest when we can't find an answer to a question, but honestly, that's a problem too, right? There should be transparency. We if someone has a question about local government or that were made, we may have an issue with transparency if we can't answer that question for you. And so we're we're honest about that as well. You mentioned Malak Silni earlier. I was going through some of the articles on the website right before we were talking. And one thing that I noticed that she noted in her introductory article was that she worked as a part-time Arabic information needs reporter, which mm-hmm. made me wonder, what are your demographics of your readership? That is something that we are trying to track now. We recently, like I said, we recently merged with Detour, and that's going to be a big job for Ashley Woods Branch in terms of figuring out the demographics of our readers. What we do know, though, is that we, in 2021, we were able to connect with 60,000 reporter, not reporters, <laughs> readers or audience members in, in 2021. And so that's something that Ashley is trying to narrow down for us as as part of her job. She started at Outlier in March, and we hope to be able to bring some definition to that really soon. Uh, But what we do know is that Detroit is nearly 80% Black. And so, you know, while that is our, like I said earlier, our exclusive, our elite audience, we know that many of our readers and subscribers and audience members may not live within the city of Detroit. And so one of the things that we have talked about this year is even if we can't necessarily get the demographics of all of our readers, we'd be interested in tracking the most popular zip code, for example, because that we we actually may have access to is what zip codes do people do people live in within the city? And that may also kind of help us define a little bit more about who our readers are. How is it decided what's worthy of full length article treatment? You know, it it varies. If we feel like an article needs a full length article needs to be written, we'll write it. But we don't just answer questions in full length articles. Like it can be we we tweet out the answer or we send an email about the answer or it's a mention in the newsletter. So it really just kind of depends on what we find. And when we don't find much, we don't look at those like detours as dead ends. And so we're okay with pushing until we have something. We've got a FOIA that went in at the top of the year that we're still pushing for an answer to, and it's August. So it's, you know, if it's important and it typically is, we won't stop. And we understand that 
watchdog journalism doesn't always have quick answers, but slow and steady wins, wins the race sometimes. And so we'll always have something for our audience in the meantime, while we try to find the answers to some of the questions that may actually take a full length article and not just, you know, being able to answer the question in a smaller format. What are you most proud of in terms of, let's say specifically in terms of the articles that have been written on the site since you've been there? You know, when I first started at Outlier, I knew what it was. I had a relationship with the executive director for for many years. So I, I knew what Outlier was, but now I just see people talking about it more. And just to see the number of retweets and reactions on social media, whether it's on the Outlier feed or or on my own, I'm proud that people read our work and they're like, what? Like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Just today, we published from Miriam Marini, who is the reporter who we share with the Detroit Free Press, so collaboration. She wrote an article about a Detroit man who vehicle was at a mechanic's shop and the mechanic shop subsequently closed without notice. The mechanic dumped the the vehicle in a private lot. That private lot had that vehicle towed. The owner of the vehicle couldn't find the car for a really long time. And now he's up to like more than $5,000 in towing like storage fees because he didn't know where the vehicle was and no one could tell him. And it ended up being, you know, somewhere like halfway across the city. And so people are looking at that article. They're reacting to it. They're shocked, they're dismayed, but they're also moving on it. So they're asking our reporters, well, oh my God, I would like to donate money to this man. How do I, how do I do that? And while we are not in the business of facilitating GoFundMes for our, our readers, that is that is outside of our lane, you know, we are in the business of, of connecting people, right? So when these readers write in and they say, how can I get in touch with whoever, you know, the source may be, we're fine with then forwarding that message to, to that source without any steering language or, or anything like that. Again, we don't facilitate fundraising for our sources, but we look at that and we say, that's impact. That is moving the crowd. And so I think that is probably the thing that makes me the most proud is when we can actually see that impact. We've talked a lot about the site itself, the site, the newsletters, the texts, all of that. We haven't talked about specifically what you do as managing editor. Can you uh, walk <laughs> us through some of the some of the things that you might do in a particular day? Oh, sure. Well, I guess we could talk about today. Uh, today was was pretty busy. Okay, so I was remote today. I work remotely, even though our newsroom is, is open. I work remotely because I had a dentist appointment. And that actually, that means something. When you can, you know, say, that didn't used to be the case for journalism. You had to be in the newsroom or you had to be out on a story. And Outlier operates from the standpoint that we don't need to hover and see you and be helicopter editors in order to know that your work is being done. If COVID taught us anything, that that is one of the bigger lessons is that we don't actually have to be in your face to know that you are doing your job. And so I was able to work remotely today because I had a dentist appointment. And so I did that. I ran the editorial meeting at 11 o'clock this morning. I set up a guest speaking event for community college students. So next month I will 
go to that college campus, which is actually about an hour away from here. And I'll go there and I will run our, it'll be a Thursday again. And so I'll run our editorial meeting remotely after talking to those students for about 30 minutes about Outlier and whatever it is that they would like to ask me about journalism or, or my path in journalism. And then they'll be able to witness our editorial meeting from there. I met with our development director about building a, a case for support for some potential donors. I, I spoke with our documenters coordinators about a new recruitment initiative that we're launching this month where we are looking for 10 college students to join the Detroit Documenters program. And from there, we will pull our next intern from, from that group. And so that's a, it's a, it's a training ground in that regard. And we're, we're able to do that because of a grant from the Scripps Howard Fund. I promoted that story online about the, the gentleman who had the issue with the missing vehicle that was towed away. I talked to our reporter about how to navigate that feedback from readers about that impact that we were seeing. And now I'm here. <laughs> so <laughs> Now you're talking yeah. with us. Yeah. What's the next step for Outlier Media? We are going to continue to fill information gaps for Detroiters. That will always be our mission. We will grow our organization in terms of coverage areas. We love to increase our focus on labor and transportation, community health and the environment. We'll collaborate more. We'll develop professionally. We'll avoid burnout. <laughs> we are serious about that. We'll, we'll hire freelancers and, and visit college classrooms and high school classrooms. And where necessary, we will change because we understand that needs change and we are hyper aware of that and will remain aware of that. And you've said a few, you've alluded a few times to students, and I feel like we could do an entire episode that was just on your passion for journalism education, both the work that you've done in high schools, the work that you do as a professor, the work that you're doing pursuing your doctorate. But I, I have two questions, I guess, related to that, or it might kind of combine into one. What can be done to make journalism a more appealing profession for students and perhaps as well for young Black and Latino students, areas in which the numbers mm -hmm. are lagging a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that answer is not difficult. Six steps. I'll say recruit, hire, pay, train, support, promote, and then repeat. It's not rocket science. You recruit, go directly to the NABJ, NAHJ conferences, go directly to historically Black colleges. And go with real opportunities. I, I heard a, a young a journalist say on in a Twitter space chat just the other day that they had gone to a, a recruitment fair at NABJ, which was in Las Vegas last week. And this person said that basically there were only pseudo freelance opportunities that were presented to them. And they were expecting actual communication about real full-time jobs, right? So go and recruit with real opportunities. Give them a professional development budget when you bring them in. So that's part of that, that training and, and supporting them because people don't leave jobs because 
at least in journalism necessarily, because they just hate the job, like the tasks of the jobs. I think they're mainly leaving because of a lack of organizational support. And so we can't just bring them in and then leave them out to dry. We have to bring them in and support them and get them mentors who look like them. And then don't just keep them in these these boxes, right? Like don't underestimate them because you you just never know. If you've done, if your systems are in place and you are properly training these students or or just entry-level employees, if you're properly training them and your systems are in place to keep your your employees happy and, and fulfilled and developing and evolving, they'll stick around. And so if also if those things are done right, then they will be promotable. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word. I should look it up. But then you can look, you can actually promote them into higher spots and not just keep them in the same position that you hired them for. So yeah, recruit them, hire them, pay them, train them, support them, and promote them. And then repeat. It's not hard. And the profession, it's fair to say, has a long way to go in that regard. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so one last question to close here. We salute you for your good work and the work that Outlier does. And we ask you to do likewise. Is there someone or mm. some organization that you would like to salute for their good work, preferably one you're not affiliated with? <laughs> one of them. I have one. I have many, but I'll go with this one. And it's capital B, capitalbnews.org. And I just think that any organization that centers Black voices that are, which are often, you know, quelched and, and, and quieted, when you center those voices and those needs, you are, you are all right with me, especially when you find interesting ways to partner with others and with your community to do it. So yeah, capital B, and that's capitalbnews.org. Check it out. We will. Aaron Perry, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, best of luck uh, in your future and best of luck with Outlier. Keep in touch. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.